To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. You know the stories, but have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why? Why would someone holster a semi-automatic rifle to begin a heartless shooting rampage? Why do serial killers methodically single out their next helpless victim? Why are thousands of innocent lives taken instantly? So far this year, over 300 mass shootings have occurred in the United States. Some experts believe over 2,000 serial killers are operating in the U.S. today. Unfortunately, these events happen so frequently that we've become numb. Behind every massacre, there lies a reason. Sometimes they're obvious. Many mass murderers have similar traits. Sensation-seeking, lack of remorse, impulsivity, need for control, and predatory behavior. But other times, massacres are almost impossible to explain. This is Anatomy of a Massacre, Rockefeller Audio's newest podcast series. Anatomy of a Massacre is a true crime podcast investigating the most notorious massacres in human history. From serial killers to mass shooters to genocides, there lies a new horrid reason to expose in each episode. Join your host, Courtney Fretwell, a forensic psychologist, as she dives deep into the psychology, criminal theories, and policy implications behind each tragedy. New episodes of Anatomy of a Massacre are available right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. You know what happened? Now, let's uncover why. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In 1975, life in Detroit, Michigan, revolved around two influential organizations, the Mob and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Jimmy Hoffa was involved with both. On July 30th, Jimmy prepared for a key lunch meeting. He kissed his wife and promised to be back in time for dinner, but he never made it, as Jimmy Hoffa was never seen or heard from again. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 147, The Mysterious Disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. 
As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new exciting cases, conduct in-depth, fact-based research, produce and edit this weekly show. As a thank you for supporting this show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, shout-outs and episodes, priority on case suggestions, and access to weekly bonus episodes. To support Forensic Tales, please visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's get to this week's episode. July 30th, 1975, started like any other day for 62-year-old Jimmy Hoffa. Although Jimmy Hoffa wasn't president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters anymore, he still woke up every day fighting to get the union back. He wasn't the kind of person to sit back and enjoy retirement. Jimmy began his morning on July 30th, 1975, like he did every day. He woke up early, did 30 push-ups, then had his breakfast of grapefruit, toast, two soft-boiled eggs, and tea. After breakfast, he made a few quick phone calls to union allies to keep up with the latest Teamster doings. After that, he told his wife, Josephine, that he was headed out to attend a late luncheon around 2 o'clock p.m. Before heading out the door, he told his wife that he'd be back by 4 o'clock p.m. just in time to start dinner. Around 12 o'clock noon, Jimmy got dressed in blue pants and a blue shirt. He got inside his 1947 green Pontiac hardtop coupe to drive 40 miles to the meeting place. The meeting was scheduled at the Red Fox restaurant in Bloomfield Township, just outside Detroit, Michigan. He planned to meet with two men, Anthony Giacalone and Anthony Provenzano. The meeting was called to schedule a dispute between Jimmy and Anthony Provenzano. Jimmy arrived at the restaurant a little earlier than he anticipated, so to kill some time, he stopped off at an airport limousine service where he was a secret investor. He planned to visit with his close friend and business partner, Louis Linto. But when he arrived, his partner wasn't there. He was out to lunch. So Jimmy only stayed around for a couple minutes talking to a few employees. And after that, he left and headed towards the Red Fox restaurant. Around 2.30 p.m., sometime after the meeting would have started, Jimmy called home from the restaurant. Using a payphone in front of Damon Hardware Store, directly behind the Red Fox restaurant, he asked his wife if anyone had called the house looking for him. But Josephine said no. The phone hadn't rung even once since he left. He then told his wife that he would be home around 4 o'clock p.m. to grill steaks for dinner. About an hour later, Jimmy made a second phone call to the limousine business. This time, he called. His business partner, Lewis, was there. Jimmy told his partner that the people he planned to meet at the Red Fox didn't show up. He was angry that they stood him up. Jimmy told his business partner he was leaving the restaurant and headed to meet him at the limo business. Angry that his meeting fell through, Jimmy shouted on the phone to his business partner, I'm coming out there. 
But after Jimmy Hoffa hung up the phone, neither his wife, Josephine, nor his business partner would ever hear from Jimmy again. He never made it to the limo business, and he never made it home to his wife for dinner. A little after 4 o'clock p.m., Josephine became worried when her husband Jimmy didn't come home. It wasn't like him to not even call if he was running just a few minutes late. She decided to call two of her close friends to come over and wait for him. But hours passed, and Jimmy never came home. Early the following day, Josephine called their 34-year-old adult son James in Traverse City, Michigan and their 37-year-old daughter, Barbara, in St. Louis. Both of them immediately jumped on planes and headed to their parents' house. Josephine also called the Bloomfield Township Police Department to report Jimmy missing just before 8 o'clock a.m. She explained to the police that it had been over 16 hours since she last heard from her husband, and the last place he was at was at the Red Fox Restaurant, nearly 20 miles away near Detroit. A couple of police officers went straight to the Red Fox restaurant, and when they got there, they found Jimmy's unlocked green Pontiac still parked outside the restaurant, but no sign of Jimmy. The police searched the car for any clues that might suggest where he could have gone. If Jimmy left behind his car, what else could he have left behind? But the search of the Pontiac turned up nothing. It was simply an abandoned car with no signs of foul play. No blood, nothing appeared to be stolen from the car, and there was no sign of Jimmy anywhere. Jimmy Hoffa was officially entered in the system as missing person number 75-3425 at 6 o'clock p.m. on July 31st and the Hoffa family immediately offered up a $200,000 reward for any information about his disappearance. The infamous labor leader and former president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters had simply vanished without a trace. James Riddle Hoffa was born in a middle-class family on Valentine's Day, February 14, 1913, in the small town of Brazil, Indiana. He was the third of four children, and it was a surprise to his parents, Viola and John. When Jimmy was seven years old, his father suddenly passed away, and the family moved to Detroit, Michigan. In Detroit, Jimmy's mom got a good-paying job polishing car radiator caps. Two years after the family moved to Detroit, the Great Depression in the U.S. hit. People across the country lost their jobs, and families struggled to make ends meet. Luckily, Jimmy kept his job at a department store that helped keep his family afloat. But Jimmy knew his department store job wouldn't cut it much longer. If he was going to support his family, he needed something more stable. A close family friend once told Jimmy that he should get a job in the food business. Everyone needs to eat, so the food business will always be around, and there's always going to be jobs. And Jimmy listened. In 1929, he left the department store and got a job unloading railroad cars of produce at the city's largest Kroger's grocery store, 
the pay was 32 cents an hour. For Jimmy and his coworkers to make $15 a week, they had to work at least 60 hours a week just to make $15. The working conditions at Kroger's grocery store were awful. Jimmy and his coworkers were overworked and underpaid. The workers only got paid when they were unloading a railroad car, and they weren't paid for the times they were just sitting and waiting for the next shipment. So this meant that many hours Jimmy and his coworkers were at the grocery store, they weren't getting paid. Jimmy and several others banded together to fight back against the terrible working conditions. They knew if they wanted to create a positive change in their working conditions, they all needed to be on the same page. At 18 years old, Jimmy became one of five leaders among the 175 warehouse workers at the Kroger's. Although strikes were illegal in Michigan, Jimmy and his co-workers staged one anyway. They refused to unload any of the produce cars until management addressed their concerns about the working conditions. The strike only lasted one hour until the management gave in. The one-page contract, signed in in May 1931, gave Jimmy and his co-workers a 13-cent hourly raise, a guaranteed half-day of work each week, health insurance, and recognition of their union. Jimmy and his fellow union members called themselves the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. This was only the beginning of Jimmy Hoffa's legacy in workplace unions in the U.S. For the next several decades, Jimmy rose to become a prominent labor union leader. By 1952, he became the national vice president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, or IBT. And between 1957 and 1971, he served as president. Under his leadership, the union became the largest by membership in the U.S. with over 2.3 million members at its peak. As the police investigated Jimmy's sudden disappearance, they identified a promising witness. The witness was a truck driver who might have been the last person to see him. The driver told investigators that he saw Jimmy riding with three other unidentified men driving a Mercury Marquis. The trucker told the authorities that the Mercury caught his attention because it almost collided with his truck as it left the Red Fox restaurant, the restaurant where Jimmy had scheduled his meeting and his car was abandoned. The police found another witness who said they saw Jimmy standing by his car and pacing around the restaurant's parking lot. Two other witnesses said they saw him, recognized him, and stopped to chat with him for a few minutes. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, 
Your support means I can continue to deliver high quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. The police then turned their attention to figuring out who was inside the Mercury with Jimmy. And the first people they suspected were Anthony Gia Cologne and Anthony Provenzano, the two people Jimmy planned to have a meeting with at the Red Fox that day, and possibly the two last people to see Jimmy. Anthony Provenzano, better known as Tony Pro, was a powerful figure in an East Coast Mafia family. Tony Pro was a capo in the Genevieve crime family in New Jersey. A capo, sometimes called a captain or skipper, is a rank used in the mafia. A capo is someone who works directly underneath the mob's underboss and leads a crew of soldiers who work underneath him. Someone who becomes a capo in the mafia holds a lot of power in the organization, and they have a strong influence in the crime family. At the time of Jimmy's disappearance, Tony Pro was a capo for the Genevieve crime family in New Jersey, a group of very powerful Italian-American mobsters who control all the organized crime within the state of New Jersey. Their influence on organized crime in the U.S., goes all the way back until the early 1920s. For years, Tony Pro was a top figure in the mob. He rose to become a highly feared and respected top earner and loyal mob member. By 1937, Jimmy Hoffa began working with mobsters, including Tony Pro and other influential figures in East Coast crime families. Initially, Jimmy started working with mobsters to help organize union strikes with the Teamsters. But then Jimmy's relationship with the mob grew, and eventually, almost everything the union did was driven by the mob. There was a mutual agreement between Jimmy, the Teamsters, and the mob. Jimmy and the Teamsters needed to defend their union, and the mobsters were open to doing anything that involved making money. It made no difference whether it was a union or not. If it made the mob money, they would do whatever was necessary. Now, exactly what Jimmy promised the mobsters or delivered to them over the years isn't entirely known. But in 1937, Jimmy's long and complicated relationship with Tony Pro and the mob began. Tony Pro had become a Teamster local leader in New Jersey and national vice president of the union during Jimmy's second term as president. So the two of them knew each other very well. Tony joined the Teamsters when he was a truck driver, but through his ties to the mafia, he quickly fought his way into the top ranks of the Teamsters. He rose to power with the union by leading violent election campaigns and he was suspected in several mysterious disappearances and deaths of Union opponents. 
At first, Tony and Jimmy were good friends, but their relationship soured when they both ended up in federal prison. In July 1963, Tony Pro was convicted of extortion. He was accused of receiving labor peace payoffs from the Dorn Transportation Company between 1952 and 1959. Following his extortion conviction, he was sentenced to seven years in federal prison. Jimmy was also sentenced to federal prison around the same time. Two months before Tony, in May of 1963, Jimmy was indicted for jury tampering in Tennessee. He was charged with attempting to bribe a grand jury during his 1962 conspiracy trial in Nashville. Jimmy was later convicted in May 1964 and sentenced to eight years in federal prison in order to pay a $10,000 fine. While he was in prison serving that sentence, he was convicted in a second trial in July 1964. This second conviction was for one count of conspiracy and three counts of mail and wire fraud for misusing the Teamsters pension fund. And for that, he was sentenced to an additional five years in prison. Following both of their releases from prison, their friendship took a turn. Between 1973 and 1974, Jimmy asked Tony for his position back with the Teamsters, but Tony refused. At one point, Tony allegedly threatened Jimmy by saying he would, quote, pull out his guts and kidnap his grandchildren if he made a move back to the top of the Teamsters union. From that point on, Jimmy and Tony were no longer friends. They were enemies. Detectives sat down and interviewed Tony Pro about Jimmy's disappearance. They knew the two men had a history. But when they questioned Tony, he denied ever meeting with Jimmy at the Red Fox restaurant. He told investigators that he and Jimmy never had plans to meet that day. Instead, Tony said he was playing cards with a friend in Union City, New Jersey, the day that Jimmy disappeared. This alibi placed Tony over 500 miles away from the restaurant where Jimmy was last seen. Numerous witnesses also said that they either saw or with Tony Pro all afternoon and that he was nowhere near the Red Fox. The police then turned their attention to the second man believed to have been with Jimmy, Anthony Giacalone. Anthony, better known as Tony Jocks, was also a powerful mobster. At the time of Jimmy's disappearance, he was a capo in the Detroit Partnership, an Italian-American organized crime group in Michigan. In terms of mafia organizations, the FBI listed him as one of the big men. Despite countless arrests and criminal indictments before Jimmy's disappearance, Tony Jocks was never sent to prison until 1976, about one year after Jimmy vanished. Detectives interviewed Tony Jocks, but like his fellow mobster Tony Pro, he denied having lunch plans with Jimmy that day. Like Tony Pro, he said he was nowhere near the Red Fox. But the police continued to suspect both men weren't telling the whole truth. 
Two days after Jimmy disappeared, the FBI took charge of the investigation. This was no ordinary missing person investigation. This case involved the mafia. It involved the missing of a high-profile person. So right away, the FBI took over. And one of the first things the FBI did was investigate the truck driver's claim that he saw Jimmy with three other men driving in front of the restaurant in a maroon Mercury. This evidence was so important to the FBI because whoever was last seen with Jimmy in that car was likely the last person to see him at all. And if that was the case, they were the people who probably knew what happened to him and if he's still alive or not. The FBI quickly learned that one of Tony Jock's sons, Joseph, owned a 1975 Mercury that perfectly matched the eyewitness's testimony. So FBI agents immediately went to Tony's house to search for the Mercury. Inside the car, the FBI found small traces of bloodstains and a few strands of hair on the back seat. But because DNA testing wasn't available back then, the FBI brought in trained police dogs to sniff the car out. Two tracking police-trained St. Bernards were brought in. When they got to the back seat of the car, they instantly alerted their handlers that they detected Jimmy Hoffa's scent. But there was no way of knowing when exactly Jimmy was in the car. This only told investigators that Jimmy had been in the car at one point. The FBI learned that the car had been borrowed by a guy named Charles Chucky O'Brien on the day of Jimmy's disappearance. Chucky O'Brien was very close to Jimmy. As a kid, Chucky moved to Detroit with his mother after his father abandoned the family. And when they got to Detroit, Chucky's mom became friends with the Hoffa family. When Jimmy became president of the union, Chucky became his special assistant at 23 years old. From then on, Jimmy was like a father figure to Chucky. Those close to Jimmy and Chucky said that the two of them were inseparable. Jimmy treated Chucky with such affection that many people thought that Jimmy was his biological father. They had no idea they weren't actually related. So when the FBI discovered that Chucky had borrowed the car, believed to have kidnapped Jimmy, they were surprised. The FBI tracked Chucky down and questioned him about Jimmy's disappearance. He admitted to them that he borrowed the car that day, but he denied having anything to do with the case. When the FBI confronted him about the traces of blood found in the backseat, he said the blood came from fish. According to Chucky, he used the car that day to deliver fish, and that's why there was blood in the back seat. The blood was fish blood and didn't belong to Jimmy or anyone else. The FBI performed testing on the blood stains, and the results supported Chucky's story. The blood wasn't Jimmy's, and in fact, was fish blood. About one month after Jimmy's disappearance, a Detroit grand jury was assembled to determine if there was enough evidence for an arrest of anyone questioned by the FBI. Although the FBI suspected both Tonys 
or Chucky were involved in Jimmy's disappearance. They didn't have a strong case against any of them. The grand jury heard testimony from 16 witnesses over several weeks, but the grand jury couldn't decide about criminal charges against anyone involved, and no one was arrested, including both Tony's and Chucky. Between 1975 and 1982, hundreds of FBI agents worked the case, but no arrests were made, and Jimmy's whereabouts remained a mystery. Over the years, several possible suspects, including both Tonys, have been convicted on unrelated charges, but none of them were ever arrested in connection with Jimmy. Tony Pro was convicted in 1978 of murder and sentenced to life in prison, and the other Tony, Tony Jocks, was convicted of tax evasion in 1976 and sentenced to 10 years. By 1982, Jimmy Hoffa was declared legally dead. Even though no body was ever recovered and no arrests were ever made in his murder, he was presumed dead. Under Michigan law, a person can be presumed dead if he or she has been missing and not heard from for seven years or more. This assumption applies regardless of whether a body has been found. And in Jimmy's case, his body has never been found and the location of his remains is unknown. From 1982 through March of 2001, the investigation was practically at a standstill, and for many years, people wondered if the mystery behind Jimmy's disappearance would ever be solved. But in March 2001, there was a big break in the case. In 2001, evidence in the case was submitted for testing, At the time of the crime, 1975, the only thing the FBI did was bring in police scent dogs. They didn't have DNA testing or fingerprinting. And when it came to the few strands of hair they found in the backseat of the mercury, they had no way of testing it. So the hair was essentially useless to investigators. But by 2001, forensic testing was starting to emerge. In March 2001, a strand of hair found on Chucky O'Brien's Mercury car was submitted for DNA testing. DNA can be pulled from cells attached to the root of the hair. The results can be used to find out if people are related. Or in criminal investigations, forensic hair analysis can help identify a person who may have been present at a crime scene. But in Jimmy's case, the FBI was interested in determining whether the hair found inside of Chucky's car belonged to Jimmy or not. On top of the police scent dogs alerting to Jimmy's scent in the car, the hair could further prove when and if he was inside the car. The 2001 test results confirmed that the strands of hair recovered in Chucky's mercury positively matched Jimmy's DNA. It was his hair in the back seat. These tests finally confirmed the FBI's original theory that he was at least inside the vehicle that day. By 2004, there was another huge advancement in the case. In 2004, fellow mobster Frank Sheeran 
also known as The Irishman, released a biography. Frank Sheeran, a.k.a. The Irishman, worked with Jimmy Hoffa at the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and had strong ties to the Pittston crime family. In his 2004 biography, The Irishman claimed to know who killed Jimmy, and he said he could prove it. According to Frank Sheeran, Chucky O'Brien had driven them all to a house in Detroit. He said he shot and killed Jimmy once they got to the house. He also claimed that blood evidence proved that he was the killer could still be found. Initially, this confession seemed promising. But once the FBI performed further testing on the remaining evidence, the blood found inside the house was not Jimmy's blood. So the police were back to square one. Frank Sheeran, a.k.a. the Irishman, didn't murder Jimmy. A handful of possible sites believed to be the dumping ground of Jimmy's body were searched over the years. The searches included a house farm and underneath a former mobster's house. But nothing in the searches turned up any sign of Jimmy. The mystery surrounding Jimmy's disappearance and presumed murder has sparked many possible theories over the decades. Let's discuss some of those theories. The first, and maybe most popular, was Tony Pro was the person responsible for his murder. His body was then ground up in little pieces, shipped to Florida, and thrown into a swamp. This theory came from self-described mafia murderer Charles Allen. Charles Allen served time in prison with Jimmy and participated in the Federal Witness Protection Program. He told his story to a U.S. Senate committee in 1982, the same year Jimmy was legally presumed dead. But the FBI never found enough evidence to support any of Charles Allen's claims. The FBI believes he made the story up trying to sell the story to make money. The FBI can't question Tony Pro anymore about the case because he died in December 1988 at a California prison where he was serving his life sentence for murder. Theory number two. Jimmy is buried under Section 107 of Giants Stadium in New Jersey. This story was told by a self-described hitman, Donald Tony the Greek Frankos, in a 1989 Playboy magazine interview. This story also turned out to be false. Theory number three. Jimmy was kidnapped by federal agents, driven to a nearby airport, and dropped out of a plane. The FBI found no evidence of this theory either. Theory number four. Jimmy was killed by Frank the Irishman Sheeran. The Irishman released his biography in 2004, claiming that he shot and killed Jimmy at a house in Detroit. But of course, we already know that blood evidence refutes his story. The FBI is also unable to question him anymore because he died at the age of 83 in December of 2003. 
He died after receiving a 32-year prison sentence for labor racketeering in 1980. Theory number five. The other Tony killed Jimmy, Tony Jocks. He was one of the Tonys allegedly scheduled to meet with Jimmy at the restaurant that day. Although, according to both Tonys, they never had plans to meet him. Tony Jocks died in February 2001 at the age of 82. Other theories say Jimmy is buried underneath a swimming pool or beneath the 73rd story Renaissance Center in downtown Detroit. He might be buried in a makeshift grave beneath a concrete slab of a barn in Oakland Township. Or his body was delivered to a Jersey City landfill in 1975, placed in a steel drum, and buried about 100 yards away on state property that sits below a highway. Other people, other people believe that Chucky O'Brien is the killer. They believe he killed the person he once considered like a father to him. Witnesses said they saw Jimmy inside a maroon Mercury with three other men. The FBI eventually identified the Mercury and found out that Chucky used the car to deliver fish to a friend on the very same day of Jimmy's disappearance. When police scent dogs were brought in, we know they alerted to Jimmy's scent in the back seat, and then in 2001, forensic testing on strands of hair collected from the back seat confirmed that the hair was Jimmy's. Unfortunately, like many others in this case, Chucky can no longer be interviewed. He died recently in 2020 at the age of 86. Over the years, the FBI has developed its own theory about what might have happened to Jimmy. The FBI has said the most likely theory is that the new Teamster leadership ordered a hit on him to prevent his return to power in union politics. The FBI has also said that the chances of finding Jimmy's body are slim to none. Even after almost five decades, many people remain fascinated by the disappearance, and many people wonder if forensic testing was available in 1975, could the FBI have solved this? If the FBI tested the strands of hair found in the backseat of Chucky O'Brien's maroon mercury, could that have been enough to make an arrest? Or, if the testing was available, what else could the FBI have tested that could have led to a suspect? Leads in the case continue to be presented and explored by the FBI. But even after all these years, we are still no closer to finding out what really happened to Jimmy Hoffa or who is responsible for his disappearance and presumed murder. Maybe someday, advancements in forensic testing can find out. To share your thoughts on the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. 
you'll want to listen to this one because I'm going to let you know what I think happened to him. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for listening this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., David B., Nicole G., Paula G., Christine B., Karen D., Sherry A., Elizabeth M., Michael D., Lisa S., and Nicola. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.